All right, welcome everybody to the Op Show. Kick us off, Tristan. Welcome, everyone. This is the Op Show, where we bring you the trials and tribulations, the automations, and the collaborations from the world of DevOps. We're here with our friend Don Burks, who uh, has been the uh, is is the technical lead at Sphere, and also was the former head instructor at Lighthouse Labs. Uh, he's a 20-year veteran of the tech and startup scene, and he originally thought he was going to be a professional musician before he got into code. Thank you and welcome, Don. So great to have you on the show. So great to be here. Thanks so much. Well, we're here, uh, you know, talking a lot about the and you know entire developer experience, and I think one one of the thoughts that you know we had been discussing, Don, we're looking at you know as you as an instructor and an educator and a teacher. You know what as people are staying at home uh you know spending more time developing their own skills like what do you think about that developer experience where you know i'm you know i'm at home i'm trying to learn new things uh, improve my own stack or improve my own you know language knowledge base you know how, how do you think about that time and that period right now and how developers can get more out of it it's really interesting right now because when you're on a development team and you're working in an office, typically you've got, you know, your backend dev that's, you know, sitting near you and your DevOps people that are sitting near you and the front end people are sitting near you and your testers are sitting near you. Now, when we're working from home, even if you've got that all hands Slack call or Skype call or Meet or Zoom or whatever you're using, um, even when you have that up and running, that now there's a lot more... I don't want to say pressure, but I'm just going to say responsibility on an individual dev to have, you know, a broader skill set to be able to take care of more on their own because there is that greater feeling of being on your own right now. And so what I'm hearing from a lot of my friends that are, you know, in that work from home remote situation and had had really clear cut in the box roles before now I'm hearing that they're starting to broaden their horizons a bit and blur those lines of that box so that the back-end devs are learning a little bit more about front-end build tools and the front-end devs are starting to get a little bit more into database queries. Literally yesterday, I was working with a designer who also does React Native development, showing him basic SQL queries because he wanted to understand where that data was coming from. And so these skill sets are starting to broaden quite a bit. Mm, yeah, that's that's super interesting. So, are we going to see like a full stack explosion of, uh, you know, developers coming back into the scene with this much more deeper level of a stack? Or I'm not sure if we're going to see like a full full stack explosion, but what I think we are going to see is kind of a contraction from that uh, growth that we saw, where you know, as our industry has been maturing over the past 25 years. What started off as just, you know, the crazy sweatpants tech guy in the basement doing everything from DevOps to sysadmin to the actual coding of, you know, web pages and running email servers. Uh, you know, now we started to silo out. We started to see very specific roles getting developed, you know, up to the point where we had mobile UX experts and desktop UX experts and tablet UX experts. Like we were really getting granular. And I think we're going to see a bit of a contraction where, you know, now we're going to have more people that can just wear the title developer and have some fluency in a broader skill set than having you know, become so focused in one niche. 
I love mm-hmm. that. I, yeah. I, I talk about that in the Lean DevOps talk a lot about, you know, the world was very specialized for a period and generalized now. And I, I think we go through these ebbs and flows, just like the SaaS ecosystem goes through bundling and unbundling, where in really great times, let's call them bull markets, there's the rise of the specialist. In a bear market, yes. you see the rise of the generalist. And I definitely agree with you now, especially because in a work from home setting, you need to be more self-directed. You have more of that rise of the generalist. How do you think about it from the perspective of new new engineers? I know you've worked with so many new engineers, trained so many of them. I think one of the things that's really challenging for people who are getting into their career in software development or DevOps or whatever technology is balancing out that self-directed nature with the idea that you have to bug someone else sometimes to learn from them. And that's a dichotomy often that um, is hard to manage in the office, way harder to manage in the current circumstances. Do you have any tips for people out there? I mean, whether they're junior or not about how to think about um, that approach to balancing a self-directed model with also a, you know, a collaborative model for learning. Definitely. Uh, there's a, a fallacy that a lot of people end up pursuing almost dogmatically. And that is they're chasing this illusion of marketability that's based on you know, having that Swiss army knife of 45 different skills that they can pull out at any moment uh, and know just enough about to get themselves into trouble. The challenge being they know enough to get themselves into trouble, but not enough to get themselves back out of trouble. So they're, they're chasing marketability by saying, oh yes, I've done one project with Gatsby. I've done one project with Kubernetes. I've done one project in React Native. You know, so they've, they've touched on a lot of little areas and are putting it on their resume to get past HR keyword filters and LinkedIn and things like that. But the the big tip that I give people is go with the, you know, where your comfort level is right now. Because if you can walk into an interview, if you can walk into, you know, some kind of, of job application setting, whether you're freelancing and trying to get a client, whether you're a dev looking to join a team, if you can walk in with that confidence that you know what you can contribute and you know that you can build and support a product that's going to actually be what that person with the money wants you to produce, you're going to be in a much better position to land that gig than if you go in going, well, I know a little bit about a lot of things and I can probably hopefully get you to pay me to learn the rest. That's a less marketable position than walking in saying, you know what? Yes, I do know how to build a responsive interface and I can probably get the the backend server running uh, and have it, you know, shipped out to AWS for you. Yes, I can do all those things. And now I can feel comfortable taking that contract or now I can feel comfortable joining that team to help you know, do those particular types of tasks. I love that. I love that so much. One of the things I've always said is um, try to be a T-shaped uh, engineer. Uh, and, or, Definitely. you know, I'd also say a 10x engineer, one person makes five people two times more productive. But that's later on in your career. Earlier on, I think T-shaped is important because if you go very deep into a set of subject matters where you can have extreme confidence in your ability to communicate your proficiency with this, and the framework and the technology doesn't get in the way of you understanding what's going behind the scenes, you're able to come in and confidently speak, but then the the T-shape across the top is now you also have the confidence to say, well, I know a little bit about this, a little bit about that, and I know I can go deeper into those things if I need to. 
A hundred percent. And a lot of people, you know, start off and they're worried about niching themselves into back end, front end, DevOps, QA, you know, those kind of roles. But we all start off when we're learning a new skill, a new language, how to cook a new meal. We start off with the things that we're comfortable with. And to go with that T-shaped idea, at the end of the day, we want to be a jail cell. You know, we want all these different bars coming down where we have deep skills in a number of different areas, but go with where you're comfortable, learn where you're comfortable, because that's where you don't have to think about the tools and the libraries and the specific patterns as much as you get to focus on how they can apply to the task at hand. You know, all these tools and libraries and, and different uh, development techniques that come out they're all there for the purpose of getting the thinking out of the way. You shouldn't have to think about those types of, of activities. You should be able to focus on business logic and what is the value of the product that you're trying to, to get shipped. Yeah, I like the T-shape the analogy a lot. Um, <clears throat> so as you start seeing, you know, as I'm, you know, I'm a developer, I'm starting to expand some of my knowledge base. Where am I going? Like, where, where, where are some of the resources that you're finding really helpful, or developers, you know, that are really the go-to spots as I'm, you know, increasing education or trying to learn a new stack? Or so there's a couple of really big resources out there that people tend to underestimate. I mean, we know the big ones like Hacker News and Lobsters and Echo.js and you know those big sites that have lots of traffic going to them where lots of articles get posted. Yes, those are super valuable, but also check out subreddits related to your language, your stack, you know, the particular areas where your focus is. Those are incredibly value, uh, valuable. Um, old school, like, you know, it's not 2010 anymore for sure, but uh, there's still a wealth of information that's in curated newsletters that are out there for every platform, every language that you can imagine, every database flavor you've ever heard of. You know, there's there's curated weekly newsletters that come out that are smart people in the industry putting together what the right resources are and saying, here's the stuff that if you digest this, you're going to be leveling up on a week over week over week basis. Mm -hmm. And certainly there's no requirement that you read every single one of them, but the ones that are relevant to the type of work that you're doing or the type of skills that you want to develop, those are the things that are going to ladder you up on a weekly basis. Uh, but the last thing that is a resource that I, I hate to even say this, this is my gray beard talking, <laughs> but read the documentation. Like go, if you're using a library, if you're using a platform, if you're using some build tool or some database, just go read the docs. You know, we, we joke about, you know, people building things, Ikea furniture without reading the instructions. We joke about people getting lost and not, not asking for directions. There's tons of documentation that is available that is one of your best resources for learning how to do the things you wanna do because we now have a pattern and a trend that's come up in industry documentation, which is including example code. So the team that built the tool is showing you how to use the tool and giving you an actual example of code that shows you how it works. So you wanna get started with something, go use their code. 
That's such great advice. Yeah. It's like the, <laughs> the advent of the README really changed the game, right? Because I'm I'm definitely one of those people who doesn't totally. re- won't read the manual because I want to read just enough that I can understand does this accomplish the thing I want, and then I want to move on to the next six tabs that I have open as I'm researching the problem. One of the things I try exactly. to do that shortcut to that knowledge without having to read everything is first of all read me right on each page, but then I also go into the issues tab and I look for what are the problems that people are having, how active is this project. And more importantly, who are the key contributors? And then what I'll often do is I'll go follow them on social media. And that's one of the things, just kicking it back to our earlier question that I found to be helpful in any kind of remote setting, because if you can't be in an office with somebody, you can still try to follow their thought leadership, their concepts, and just learn through absorbing um, and associating with the kind of content and work that they're doing. Follow them on GitHub, follow them on whatever, and you won't get there quickly necessarily with absorbing all their knowledge, but you'll build a bit of a hive mind for yourself over time. Truth, and additionally, do they have a blog? Are they posting on Medium? Uh, are they working for a company that has a dev blog or a tech blog? You know, Are there resources that are out there that talked about the building of the tool that you're trying to use or trying to solve the problem that you're trying to solve? Those resources are available, but you sometimes have to cyberstalk your way to get to them. What do you think about the sort of social yeah, aspect so think- of this, uh, Don? Like, I, I, I use Twitter as the primary place that I tend to connect with people and follow people and that stuff. I know GitHub's good, but now we have sort of the rise of... Um, what's it called, uh, the dev network, um, where they have, um, you know, the dev blogs. Um, and there's sort of these sort of niche sort of networks that are starting to emerge as well as we have the ops community, which is a Slack group. And I know a lot of open source projects are, are leveraging Slack and Gitter and always have used IRC. Um, are there any that stand out to you as like particularly welcoming communities? I think Slack uh, is is just the modern version of the IRC communities. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's the natural evolution. Uh, the benefits of the rich media and the integrations and the toolings that Slack is giving us, you know, are meriting the shift. You know, the migration from IRC. Uh, there's still a lot of us that you know prefer the text-based format, but yeah, whatever. Well. <laughs> um, but uh, Twitter is, has been a huge resource for me. I've, you know, I share a lot of, you know, when I have that six tabs open and one or two of them are particularly val- valuable and I'm like, oh, hey, this is something I think somebody else could learn from. I'm throwing it out on Twitter to share with other people. Uh, you know, and I think, I think what ends up happening is the networks that you're going to find the most valuable are taking us back to which silo you are in. Mm. There's certain ones that are there for back end. There's certain ones that are there for front end. Uh, you know, I'm seeing a lot of front end people that are finding tremendous value out of places like Dribble and Behance, which were typically purely the realm of designers. But now those sites are linking to experiments that people have done with front end web technologies. And the front end web guys are wanting to say, okay, hey, how can I go do this? How can I learn this particular effect or this animation or see how they did this cool thing? And so, you know, you have to you have to find what works for you. But the flip side, you know, to your point, Kyle, is that if you're finding these people on social, whether it's IG, whether it's Twitter, whatever it may be, uh, even the people who are doing like live Twitch streaming of coding, um, you know, there used to be, I don't know if it's still around like the coder.tv or you know, play sites like that. The, the, the thing is there, finding what they follow 
is going to lead you to resources. That's good advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that some of the ones I like, I like, I like to see how what how other people uh, align their stacks. Like Stack Share, that's a great resource. Um, and then even seeing what engineering teams, when they're more publicly available with what they're doing and how they're working through things, and sometimes even building if they're large building tools and open sourcing them. Um, that's always great to see too. I know like Airbnb or Slack do some things like this. Slack just did yeah. a, a, a walkthrough webinar t talking about their workflow builder and what how developers can get more involved. And so I think the, the, there's a lot of great resources there too to like learn from the big guys and how you can pull that back into your own workflow. Well, you have to think about the tools that you use every day and not just the ones that you use for work, but Spotify, for example, just put out a big article about their design system. And, you know, Facebook just released Recoil for React State Management. And, you know, in, unless you are actively developing Facebook applications, typically Facebook is just that thing you use to remember when pe people's birthdays are and talk to your mom. <laughs> but hey, here they are with this big tech platform. And you look at the tools like Happy and other things that Walmart e-commerce are creating yeah. uh, and have been working on for a couple of years. You know, these are, these are powerful tools. and. You know, so finding, you know, finding those dev blogs, finding those releases, I mean, even finding their GitHub accounts uh, and seeing what they've got posted up there for tools that you use every day just as a consumer, not necessarily what you use as a dev professional, start leading you into great resources that can inspire, educate, broaden your horizons, ladder you up, all those benefits. What do you think about the sort of like, dichotomy between leveraging these powerful tools that are coming out of these larger, more advanced engineering teams with the practical nature of just getting stuff done. Um, one of the things we talk about a lot is, especially in DevOps, there's sort it can feel like a snake swallowing an elephant in that earlier stage businesses, earlier, you know, careered uh, people, developers are often looking at these engineering blogs. They're seeing things like Kubernetes as a good example. And I would imagine this is to a certain degree true in some of the React concepts as well that you mentioned. And then as they try to implement those, they're sort of um, bringing a, a bazooka to a fist fight uh, is one way to say. Um, and, and suddenly the tool is what is uh, the tail that wag is wagging the dog. Do you have any advice for people as they think about that? Because as much as you can get this great sort of um, learning and, and advance your concepts through these uh, more advanced blogs and these these communities, you also have to think through the practical nature of what are you trying to accomplish day to day. So, yeah, there's a couple really big thoughts I have on that. And th these are terribly opinionated. So if I sermonize, just feel free to wave me down. But <laughs> uh, I think a lot of times as devs, we have an attraction to the newest, shiniest tool, whatever it may be, whatever our silo may be, we're attracted to that newest, shiniest tool. And an example that I've used when I've done talks before is imagine you get asked to build a site for your family reunion. You know, it's happening once every 10 years and people just want a place to post some pictures and have a couple dates and addresses listed and that's all that's necessary. Well, if you're a big web dev tech, you know, you're going to be firing up like a Fastify server and you're going to be building a React front end and you're going to have a calendar integration. You're going to Dockerize it and you're going to ship it in a Kubernetes container and deploy it to AWS with Elastic Beanstalk. And, you know, 
And this is something that you could do literally with a straight HTML page with embedded CSS. Yeah. You know, we have a tendency to, you know, like you said, bring a bazooka to a fist fight when we don't need to. So the rule for me always is if I'm going to bring a tool into a project, is it going to help me solve the project more efficiently, more, you know, elegantly, more powerfully? Um, and am I going to spend more time implementing the tool than I'm going to save from bringing that tool in? Um, and at the end of the day, if I'm not saving time and it's not making the project measurably better other than just because I want to use something new and shiny, I'm probably going to leave it out and then, you know, go do some side test project to learn that specific tool. Otherwise, I'm going to, you know, try and follow the KISS principle and keep it as simple as possible. Yeah. Dan McKinley has some great leadership thoughts on this with Choose Boring Technology. you got three innovation tokens, spend them wisely. Uh, I, exactly. I really like that because it kind of communicates to people that, um, you know, the technology is a, is a means to the end and, you know, try to prioritize the end and work backwards. I think that that's a really effective model for thinking it through. Well, one of the lessons that I, I've tried to give people throughout my time, whether I was teaching, team leading, whatever, is that everything we do digitally, everything we do with the technology that we use is replicating some analog process that we had in the real world to begin with. You know, we, we built spreadsheets because we got tired of manually doing two-column addition, you know, two-column uh, accounting with a, a maybe even a number machine. Uh, and we invented the number machine because we got tired of doing it in our head. So everything that we do digitally is mirroring an analog process. How many of those analog processes do you need to replace with technology in order to get the job done? And, you know, so that that's you know, going with the stack this way, whereas the three innovations tokens is going down this way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just different approaches for the same thing. But you have to understand why you're using the technology in the first place, other than just because I build stuff with code. Yeah, yeah, it comes back to sometimes you just have to do things that don't scale as well, which, you know, is, is commonly thought of in the startup ecosystem. Oh, yeah, I mean, if you're not ready for, you know, quote unquote, web scale, then you're not building it right, right? <laughs> so my family reunion site is going to get what dozens of hits a month yeah yeah, yeah i'm a, so. your family reunion site must be pretty uh pr looking pretty good i think don <laughs> based on that back end that big, I family, big family big <laughs> family <laughs> oh yeah there we go well cool well we've kind of rushed through our 15 minutes of fury with you don uh Let's jump a little bit into the community and see what sort of news is happening right now. Let's see here. Yeah, and for the community piece of this, what we're trying to accomplish, um, and we'd love to get you in there, Don, sometime to do an AMA with the, with everybody. We're trying to essentially create this Slack community that's sort of generally purpose. We, we, we are a little bit themed around DevOps, but generally we're, we're trying to theme it around broadly developers We've had you know a few hundred people join in the last few months, and and what we're doing is we're sort of just trying to create this like shared support group in the community around talking about different things that are are interesting, that are going on, that are changing in the world of development, Slack, DevOps, ChatOps, even React. It's we're trying to get that generalized sort of theme going here, where it's not too much about any one specific niche, and that way people can use it as a sort of a jump off point into those deeper domain conversations that they want to learn about. 
That, I mean, that sounds really powerful. One of the things that our communities have a tendency to do, and I'm glad to hear you're going in a different direction, is our tendencies to, uh, is to make a support group for um, us as professionals rather than us as a community. Mm -hmm. uh, so you end up with a collective of individuals rather than a community of like-minded people. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, this this idea of, of bringing a community forward that is about the advancement of the overall community is the right kind of initiative and definitely something I'd love to, to jump in and help with. Awesome. That's great. So what we do here, we kind of hit like a this week in DevOps sort of bit here where we kind of look at some of the news and things that are related to what's going on in the world right now. Um, and we're, I've been seeing a lot of this, um, this uh, like GitLab's take. There was some, a big survey with like, I don't know, almost 3,000 uh, 3, survey, surveyed people and talking about the current state of DevOps and how you know, whether it's a lot of these articles right here are talking about how remote work could hasten DevOps success. Um, I think one up here was looking at, um, yeah, hiring, onboarding, um, how to think about Slack. Um, let me pull up one of these things, but jump in if you have some thoughts. Have you looked at, have you seen this? Uh, this I was survey actually yet? one of the ones surveyed by. Oh, by wow. GitHub. Okay. Cool. Uh, interestingly, um, I'm, was having a conversation with somebody just a couple days ago about the GitLab versus GitHub kind of community, you know, leanings, market share. And I was reminded of the MySQL versus PostgreSQL uh, market share wars, you know, back before MySQL was acquired by Oracle. And I see a parallel happening where, um, you know, when MySQL was acquired by Oracle, everybody jumped to Postgres because Postgres was, you know, hardcore advancing their product at that point uh, and not worrying about acquisition. And all of a sudden we're in a position now in the world where we see our good friend GitHub being acquired by Microsoft and people starting to shift over to GitLab because they've been putting so much effort into that product. Um, you know, internally at Sphere, we have our own internal GitLab running that is our code repository and code review machine and deployment tool and you know CICD is all running through GitLab and it's you know it's a backbone that that we wouldn't be running the same without. Uh, so I, I'm starting to see that shift away from GitHub to GitLab because of the community aspect and because they're actually reaching out and saying, hey, how are you using the tools you're using and what do you want out of this? Their survey was really well constructed. It was it was one of the few that I can say the survey was a pleasure to take. Yeah, they've been really wow. good about, about surveys and stuff. We also use GitLab internally, but then we also use GitHub externally. Um, and so for us, I think GitHub still kind of wins when it comes to the idea of community and open source. I don't really feel like, you know, GitLab's offering has cracked that collaborative, like external collaboration. And so the challenge, right. one of the challenges we have is thinking through sort of having two tools, one for external, one for internal. Some projects kind of have to exist in both, especially as we open source more and more of our platform. Um, and if anything, I think we've been maybe moving in the opposite direction a little bit, more back towards GitHub, because what we found to a certain degree is that, you know, GitLab is doing so much, but not, and not a lot of it isn't like the best. Whereas GitHub sort of unbundled strategy is, you know, well, we don't do those things, but here's a way that you can plug in the best of 
this, that, or the other right. thing, whether it's our friends at Zen Hub here in Vancouver or otherwise, there's always a thing that you can plug in to enhance it. And this goes back to that unbundled versus bundled thing. But are you seeing more people take a more open source and community approach in GitLab? Because that's one thing that's still a blind spot for me. Definitely I am. Uh, and what I'm seeing with it is a lot of the tools that are out there, when I'm seeing a lot of uh, new tools that are coming out and launching, say, project management tools, when I'm seeing, you know, things like, you know, the, this whole family of integrations that you would have. Uh, I, I know you might know a little bit about Slack integrations. Um, you know, so when, when I'm seeing those kinds of tools that are out there that are now offering integrations, every single time now I'm seeing GitLab come up. Mm. Uh, you know, and I'm seeing... Uh, the type like Zenhub is a great example. You know, love everything that they have done with that tool since the beginning, uh, even back when they were an idea in the back of the Axie and Zim, you know, project room. Uh, you know, I'm seeing tools that are now starting to work with GitLab the same way that they would have worked with GitHub because uh, GitLab has been pushing that community and open source aspect. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's really good good thinking. I, I don't know that I've seen it catch up as much, but I definitely see way more integrations with GitLab. I think the challenge is just sometimes there's a little bit less space to innovate inside of GitLab because they do offer so much functionality across the board. They're very much a horizontal, you know, all-in-one DevOps tool as they try to present. And, and so what we think about a lot is how to integrate around the edges to improve, you know, a holistic experience where you're using more than one tool. So this whole unbundled versus bundled discussion is really, really relevant. And, and I think one of the things that we're seeing, you brought up Slack, is we're also seeing the move to things like Slack as a jump off point or almost like a control plane to as this place that you start your work and then you jump off into these tools. So um, more and more we're seeing all of these tools integrate with Slack to offer uh, what we think of as more like a Slack first experience because in this remote world, I mean, Slack is often where communication and collaboration happens for most of the, the teams that, that we work in, I think. Yeah, and to that jump off point, like what was, you know, what was quoted earlier about Slack being the no work workspace. Right. Uh, with Slack being the jumping off point, if you have a lot of your tools that are integrating into Slack and using that as the communication platform, what you end up with, I, I'm starting to feel, is a hub and spoke kind of mentality mm. where Slack becomes that hub. And then depending on what communication is coming through there, whether it's from an integration, whether it's from a team member, that's then sending you off towards other products and other tasks so that you keep coming back to figure out what work needs to be done and slack ends up being your clearinghouse for that as that jumping off point like you said yeah i think the change that we need to see in slack which is now starting to become more dominant and works better with these third-party tools this is something that we're implementing is we're trying to take more of the functionality out of the channel and move it to the home tab or the application tab because it's more of a, a dedicated place for that attention to be allocated and as we all know, Slack channels can get pretty noisy if every tool in the world is there. And I think as, as that starts to happen, then Slack starts to feel a lot more like a browser almost, where it is the interface to these other tools, whether it be GitLab, GitHub, or any of these other things. Um, and, and I think that's, that's where one of the places where I really predict this all kind of starts to come together around this collaborative remote working um, 
model is almost once we get to that place where there's this natural control plane or operating system for where what tools you integrate into your your team and and you don't have to deal with the nuance of each individual tool so much because there's an easy and consistent jump off point that you can get started with yeah i'm i'm reminded of the portals of the early 2000s yeah where it was the idea of bringing a collection of tools content sources uh even api feeds into a single location so that you then knew where to divide your attention, you know, where, where to allocate your work points, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and Slack is really starting to become that I see for a lot of teams and even a lot of individuals, you know, non-tech organizations that are using Slack are ending up using it the same way. Dare I say intranet? I don't know that I want to say that. Yeah. One, <laughs> do you, do you have um, any thoughts specifically on, you know, chat at the center of the developer experience. And obviously don't cater to our interests on this because I know you know that we're very bullish on it, but how do you think, um, how do you think that plays into development in the future? If we do agree that there's sort of this jump off point and chat starts to be the natural place that people are focusing their attention in the morning over email, um, you know, what do you think is the right balance between something like chat ops versus like GitOps, for example? That's a really good question. Um, the the chat ops side of things, you know, we're seeing it everywhere from, uh, you know, integrations with, I mean, we see the AI chatbots, you know, as one entire now whole land of development and type of product. We see the chat integrations with, say, Intercom or, or Help Scout or those types of you know those types of tools that are now feeding directly into your slack so that you're able to hop into a slack channel and chat with users that are on your page um the the idea of chat ops has obviously been around for a really long time uh, i think where we're finding the interesting balance is taking the human out of the chat ops uh and the it's almost a differentiator now for a product as to whether or not they can scale to the point or have the, the funding, quite frankly, to have a human at the other end of those chat operations. Yeah. And scripting it out into AI chatbots and, uh, you know, the, the different backends that are out there that are offering these types of services are, you know, they're advancing at a, at a almost frightening rate. And, you know, this isn't me putting a tinfoil hat on. Uh, but, you know, when I'm thinking about the fact that these chatbots are able to do the same AI integrate or API integrations um, that Slack is able to do or that GitLab is able to do or that, you know, say something like a, a Microsoft uh, product, you know, Teams is trying to do a lot of integrations right now. Um, yeah, the fact that you can automate a lot of those things becomes great for us as developers, but an interesting direction in terms of the industry of taking the human out of the chat ops experience. Yeah, yeah, and I don't even think it's so much limited to chat. I think we're even seeing it just in CICD and, and sort of some of what I would call GitOps now. Um, you know, Actions has this interesting use case that I saw a little while ago where a bot created a pull request that got merged by another bot um, because they were trying yes. to update some sort of dependency or something. And all of this was just automated. 
and we have things like Greenkeeper. And, and I think that that's ultimately like where this goes. I think it's a little bit less about artificial intelligence. I think their data is going to be important. Things like delivery metrics, Dora metrics, those will be important to developers and team leads in the remote setting because it just increases observability. But what I'm more excited about, I think, is the automation side because if I never have to do a cascading pull request where I update the dependencies across five different you know microservices at the same time, again, if I can get an automation to do that for me, all day long and I'll go back to writing something I'm interested in. Oh, well you look at services like SNCC uh, yeah. that works with, with JavaScript, right? And yeah, it, it'll run the audit for you. It'll find the updated dependency. It'll make sure that dependency is updated across all of your other dependencies. Uh, and it automates the whole process. And all you have to do is push it out to your CD pipeline. That's brilliant. You know, now, now I can take that particular piece of like, vulnerability worry out of my, you know, out of my stress level on a day to day basis. And it doesn't matter whether I'm just a back end engineer, whether I'm a team lead, whether I'm a CTO, uh, that's, you know, bringing in tools like that, that bring that level of automation are, you know, are golden for something like that. The, the flip side to it is, uh, again, making sure that it's the right tool for the job, because there's a lot of tools out there that will do that kind of automation, you just have to make sure that they are the right ones for the product that you are trying to release. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the last thing I want to share is is just, uh, especially with DevOps, um, one of the you know one of the big mentalities that I push for my DevOps team and for myself when I am working in a DevOps capacity is remembering that the glory of our work is in having everything we do ultimately be ignored by both our team and our end users. They should never ever have to pay attention to the work we do. And if they are, then we probably need to rethink our process. Thank you so much, Don. And uh, you know we can't go without seeing your one other hidden talent. I hope you set it up. Uh, not only, you know, I know you, you're you not allowed to do the flaming sword, juggle flaming swords anymore, but you actually are quite a great juggler. Oh, uh, I, I do juggle quite a bit. So I'll uh, I'll pull back a little bit here. Oh, right on. Anytime I'm dealing <laughs> with a problem and trying to figure stuff out, I pull out the balls and I just start Nice. <laughs> That's a great, that's better than like a stress ball or a fidget spinner. I, I, I'm, you're going to have to teach me how to do that. I can actually teach you in 10 minutes. It's easy. Okay. Well, to be continued, thank you so much, Don, for coming on the show, our inaugural guest. And it's been a pleasure to have you. And thank you for sharing all your thoughts on uh, the entire developer experience. My uh, pleasure. Anytime. With that. That's a wrap. Thank you for everyone for coming out and checking out the Ops Show today. Thanks, Don. Thanks.